0: Amen. sure appreciate the good message we've heard here this morning. pray the Lord will continue to bless us as we go a little bit further. And I ask you to continue to pray for me if you would to turn, as I'm sure you probably guessed, turn back to the book of Ruth. And we hope to conclude our comments this morning on the example that's given in the book of Ruth of a godly man. The message for the last couple weeks has been a prince or a pauper. And we saw... In the last few weeks how Boaz who is the prince that we refer to how he provided for Ruth even when he was not intending to actually be romantically involved with her he provided for her because he was just that type of man and this is of course as I've said each week these are all lessons for men for boys for, for young men to understand what God expects out of us and taking care of the sisters in our life, the women in our life, the girls in our lives. so Boaz provides, we see, and the result, according to Ruth, was that she breathed a sigh of relief. that ought to be the goal of every man one, uh, man and boy, young man on the face of the earth to bring a sigh of relief to the ladies, to the women, to the girls that are in their lives, to cause them to breathe a sigh of relief. Now I want to make a comment here as we look at Ruth the second chapter as we see how Boaz provided, and we were discussing this some throughout the week with some different folks, and I want to make sure that we point out that Boaz, as I concluded last week, was not a sugar daddy to to Ruth. Okay, what I mean by that is, think about Ruth, she was in the poorest of conditions. He did not set her up and finance the finest and best things that she could ever possibly imagine. Now, as I mentioned, the example of my dad, who was always prone to give mom twice as much as she asked for. She, she, wanted, she needed $20, he'd give her $40. You know, may, it may be that everybody can't do that. I'd I, I say to my all-shame, I have not been able to do that at times in my life. So it's not about being a sugar daddy and being able to finance some expensive taste that could be outrageous on the, on the side of a young woman or a woman in general. See, Ruth was not demanding the absolute finest everything. She just wanted to eat. She just wanted relief. You understand? So we need to be very cautious about that, that the young ladies don't think, well, yeah, I'm looking for my sugar daddy <laughs> who's going to just give me everything I want. That's not what it's about. If, if Sister Tracy had been looking for a sugar daddy, then she really blew it whenever she married me because I was working for $5 an hour at a law firm downtown Nashville with a law degree. <laughs> I think that guy really took advantage of me, don't you? But anyway, $5 an hour. I was no sugar daddy. See? Now listen also, let me say this to the parents. Parents listen carefully. If you're training your children to to expect only the finest and the best, then you're setting them up for colossal failure. Colossal failure. Now I don't mean you got to make them live like a pauper and they've got to, you know, to have just Dirt, nothing. I don't mean that. But if you're setting them up that all they have is the finest, then when their Boaz comes along, who may, be, may have a law degree but only work can only get a job for $5 an hour, they may say, well, that's not what my mom and daddy raised me to, to look for. But you see, you've got to look at the characteristics of a Boaz. You've got to look at what their heart is and what their goals are. Because just because Boaz is making $5 an hour whenever they first get married, doesn't mean that that's what he's always going to do. And I'm not just talking about myself. I'm just saying you've got to look at the character of someone. And if you're only giving the best to your children, and that's what they expect, and everything must be perfect, and there could be nothing out of the, the way, that's colossal failure that's coming. I can guarantee you that. Because... You, as a parent, have lived long enough to know that things don't always go like you want them to. Things are not always on the mountaintop. As a matter of fact, if you look back on your own life, you'll see you spent a lot of time in the valley and hammering it out, slugging it out, and I don't mean with each other, but trying to make a living, trying to make ends meet. I've given the example before. of Dad and Mom would rarely ever let me buy a polo shirt when I was in high school. I love polo shirts. Everybody's wearing them. Everybody walking. I don't know how they afforded to get them, but I said I got to have a polo shirt. It's Got to have that certain kind of little signal. One of my best friends had the iZod. and you know you'd look close and you'd see that's not a polo. But the you know, problem with polo was it was like fifty dollars even back then. It was fifty dollars a shirt, and then the iZods were like you know nineteen ninety nine. And and by the way, my my friend who was wearing the iZod, was one of the. He he came from one of the most well off families around. That was a pretty good lesson there. I just had to have that polo. I just didn't like that eyesight. See, and Dad was like, "Son, you know, we just we just can't afford that." See, it's okay not to have the best. It's okay to learn uh, to not have the best and to make do with what you have. I believe these people that we're looking at here, Ruth and Boaz, were doing that. Boaz was not a sugar daddy who was just forking out money and and only giving for the finest and all of this type of stuff. No, he was a hard-working farmer type who was very wealthy and had a lot of land, but his wealth was not in silver and gold. His wealth was in cattle and lands, and, and his true riches were in the Jehovah God. That's where his true riches were. So he was providing, but he was not a sugar daddy. So that's going to tie into something we're going to talk about here in a minute about preparing yourself to provide. But he also protected her. I I showed you in verse 8 and 9, he tells her not to go to other places, but stay right there that he's commanded his men. This is Ruth 2 in verse 8 and 9 to protect her. They're not going to touch her. You know, it's off limits for her. You better not touch her. In a sense, young men, you want to think about it this way. That young lady that you're maybe romantically interested in, you know, if it's possible, depending on your age or whatever, you know you can't do it when you're thirteen or fourteen, but your your ultimate goal is to take her off the market. You know I've told you before the when I asked my dad after I'd known Sister Tracy for about two weeks, I said, "Dad, you know what's an honorable time for a man to ask a woman to marry him after two weeks, and he was like, "Slow down, son." I was ready to take her off the market. You see. Boaz takes Ruth off the market. Now, this is not to marry her or be romantically involved in her. He wants to protect her. You see, that, that is an underlying goal, to protect the reputation of a young woman or a woman of any age. So that's what he does. He protects her. Don't you know, each time, I told you last week, every time he does something, she's just... Oh, thank goodness. Oh, thank goodness. She's just causing him, her, he is causing her more and more relief. So physically, he protects her. Emotionally, he protects her. He says, may the God of, of, may Jehovah God recompense thee and bless thee. That's verse 12. And then, he does some things behind the scenes. And that's where we get to preserve. And we talked a little bit about that last week, but we're going to conclude that today. And listen, don't forget that through the thread of every verse of Scripture in this Bible runs the truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we hope to conclude this morning with some comments about that. Every verse every verse in this Bible connects to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But they are they which testify of Me. And there's a beautiful testimony, a beautiful testimony of the super Boaz, Jesus Christ, as we'll see as we conclude here this morning. But before we get there, Notice he preserves her. He directly preserved her because he provided for her. He said, come and eat, you know, and he reached her parched corn or popcorn. And, and then he commanded behind the scenes for the men to drop uh, sheaves that they had cut so that she could intentionally, intentionally drop them so she could pick them up. So she probably had two or three times as much as the other gleaners, the other women had. And that's a good lesson right there, young men, men of any age. You know, there should be a special emphasis on that special girl. <laughs> There should be nothing that you're not willing to do in order to provide and to care for her. Boaz is not even romantically interested in, this, in Ruth yet. But he's, he is taking care of her behind the scenes. She is allowed to glean among the sheaves, which was unheard of. She is allowed to sit and eat with the reapers whenever they eat lunch, which was unheard of. And then she goes home, and of course she finds Naomi. When she goes home, she says, where did you get all this stuff from? This is in Ruth 2. And um, Ruth says, well, I was in the field of a man named Boaz. And she says, my goodness, that's one of our kinsmen. Now, I want you to understand something about the near kinsman, and we're going to look at a scripture that clearly lays it out. But in this culture, the near kinsman was one who was related to the widow of someone. And it was the Mosaic law. It was law that if a man died childless that the next of kin, the near kinsman, was to provide an heir to that man's line. Okay, That was something that was written into the law of Moses. I'll show you in the book of Deuteronomy in a minute. But as we continue the thoughts about how uh, young men and men of all ages should view and interact with women in their life and girls in their life. Sisters, mothers, grandmothers, wives, whatever. So here we have Ruth going home and she says, I was in the field of Boaz and so in chapter 3 we're going to move on into chapter 3 where we get to the preserving part you see a little bit of the preserving in chapter 2 where he preserves her by you know providing food for her immediately and he provides food for her that she takes home and and they're able to sustain themselves well in Ruth the third chapter we have the interesting account of where they go down to the threshing room she goes down to the threshing room floor and we find here something very important in the life and example of Boaz and that is this in preserving in preserving which means has an impact right now and an impact in the future in preserving the sisters the women in our life we have to be deliberate okay and so what happens is naomi there's been it's been debated back and forth you know was this good or bad what naomi did regardless of whether you believe it was a good or a bad thing it was somewhat unusual but naomi goes down to the threshing room floor you read in the third chapter and she positions herself after everybody has laid down and gone to sleep, after they've worked. And this is a time of feasting. This is a time of, of, of rejoicing in the harvest. So she she goes quietly in the dark and she lays down at the feet of Boaz. And she uncovers his feet. So. Some of you who uh, maybe kick the covers off of yourself at night and you wake up and your feet are cold because the covers are off of you. Well, Boaz does that. He wakes up and his feet are cold and he goes down to put the, a sheet or the cover back on him and he sees there's a woman laying there. And it's dark and he's, he's scared. He thinks, oh my goodness, there's a woman laying at my feet. How did she get there? And they have this interaction. I want you to notice this. And this is in Ruth 3. And verse 6, She went down unto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went down to lie at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Now the language is very clear. One of the reasons that there was nothing inappropriate going on here, I believe, is because she declared clearly what she was there for. She identified Boaz as the near kinsman. Now in one sense, and girls, ladies, don't get any ideas about this, but in one sense it's almost like her proposing marriage to him. But it's more than that. It's not a marriage proposal because she didn't say, will you marry me? She didn't do that. No, she just she was triggering a series of events that needed to take place in order to provide not just for her and not just for her mother-in-law, but also for the future and the line of those deceased men who had no children. Okay? So she says, you're a near kinsman. That was a trigger word for Boaz to hearken and go, oh, <laughs> So that's what she's here for. And so look at, look at the response. He says, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as much as thou followest not young men, whether rich or poor. You know, you're not just out to find a husband. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Now watch the repetition right here. Watch the repetition in verse 12 and 13. Boaz is being very deliberate and very intentional about what he intends to do. Okay, now it is true that I am thy near kinsman. Howbeit, there is a kinsman nearer than I. Tarry this night it shall be in the morning that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, notice the repetition, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee. You see how he repeats kinsman, kinsman, kinsman. Now watch what he says here. And you can't get any more deliberate than this. He says, as the Lord liveth, I will do the part of a kinsman. So what what's going on here is there's somebody in front of of Boaz, of Boaz, okay? This is about to get very romantically oriented because they're about to move forward possibly with a marriage. Understand that Boaz does not know how this thing will come out. You know, and that, isn't that the case? You know, I can remember when I was in high school and maybe interested in this little girl or that little girl or whatever. And you know, you don't know how it's going. You don't know if she's going to like you back. You just don't know it. You can't predict that. It's pretty obvious that Ruth likes him, or in some level or another, she's at least doing what her mother-in-law said. And so here she triggers this situation, and obviously Boaz doesn't say no, 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 no. I'm not interested. There's there's a uh, this guy that's nearer kinsman to me than me. Go and see him. He doesn't do that. See, so he's interested in her, but there's a problem. There's a guy in front of him. See? So he doesn't know how it's going to turn out, but he's going to do the right thing anyway. You see? That ought to be our goal. You don't know how it's going to turn out sometimes, but do the right thing anyway. And he says, I will do this as the Lord liveth. Now, I want you to notice that he is very deliberate in what he says he is going to do. He says, I'm going to go and do this tomorrow. I want, as I was reading this, I wondered, you know, he says basically basically he's going to go to court. Most of the time, men and women are going to court. Men are going to court to get away from their wives, you know. In this circumstance, you've got a man who's going to court to possibly gain a wife. That's very unusual and against the, our present culture, is it not? But I wondered if the old song, you know, Froggy went to court and he did ride. I wonder if this is where that came from because Boaz is going to court and He's going to court. I wonder if that's where courting came from. You know, Boaz is going to court. He's going courting in order to try to get a wife. Froggy went to courting. Boaz is about to go to courting. Some of y'all won't be able to get that song out of your head. But anyway, so Boaz says, I'm going to go courting for you. I'm going to go to court and make sure that you're taken care of one way or the other. You hear that? He doesn't know how it's going to turn out, but he's going to do the right thing. and He's going to be godly and he's going to do what is right according even to the law. He's going to do what's right and trigger a situation so that Ruth, not just so that Ruth can have a husband and not just so that uh, Naomi can have provision, but so that the line of his fallen relative will continue. There's something a little deeper going on just besides the romantic involvement here. So Boaz says, I will go to court for you. He makes it clear, does he not? Now, let me just say this. And if you if you get mad at me, I'll forgive you. I do not believe, I do not believe that it is possible for a young man to make his intentions clear, for any man to make his intentions clear through the mode of texting. Have I made you mad, young men? I do not believe it's possible. I know situations where texting has gone on and on and on and on and on, and and the question was asked, well, what are his intentions? Well, you know, he keeps texting me. I don't really know. I do not believe that texting makes it clear. I just do not believe that that intentions... I'm not saying you can't text. I'm not saying you can't do some of that. But if I've got something very important to tell my wife, I'm not going to text it to her. I'm going to call and hear her voice. And I've told you all this before. I remember when I was in high school, I practiced talking on the phone to call some girl. Practiced it. Even wrote down what I wanted to say. You know, it was like a robot. Hey, how are you doing? I'm so glad to be able to talk to you on the phone. It's so nice. Would you like to maybe sit with me at break tomorrow at school? Sound like a complete idiot. (laughs) But I survive. Young men, you will survive talking on the phone. You will. I'm not just talking about for my girls. I'm not just talking about whatever scenario you're in right now. But I do not believe that you can make intentions clear with texting. And I have some scripture for that too. Because the interaction that you have in the Word of God is one-on-one. It's direct interaction. It's not sending a message. It's not sending some kind of text or something like that. Talk and make your intentions clear. I would like to date you or I would like to carry you to this or to that it, that's the way to make intentions clear and listen there's nobody here under the sound of my voice that has violated that or hurt that I, I, don't, I don't know of a situation where I'm getting on to somebody about that. so don't think that by any means I just want to make it clear for the young men that in the in the older men and the men of all ages and some of you men don't even know what texting is praise God for you <laughs> thank you brother Furman brother Furman said amen <laughs> uh, so Make your intentions clear. Boaz makes it very clear. I will be your kinsman redeemer as long as this other guy gets out of the way. See? So Boaz has apparently already counted the cost for this. It's a high price that he's about to pay. And that's a great lesson for young men and men of all ages, isn't it? Count the cost of what you're doing. Count the cost of what it means to covenant... and and say, I'm going to stand by you through thick and thin, rich and poor, sickness and health for the rest of your and my life. You need to count that cost. Boaz had counted the cost. And so what happens is, he says, I will make sure that you are taken care of. Now, here we go under this culture and this type of law about the kinsman redeemer. It was, we often refer to it as the next of kin. It literally means to buy back a relative's property. The word also occurs elsewhere in the scripture of avenging or delivering or ransom. You might think about it like a knight in shining armor that comes in and riding on his horse and he saves the day. That's very much what the kinsman redeemer was like, the next of kin. And notice, as I said, Boaz promised. He said, as the Lord liveth. He made an oath to Jehovah God that he would see this through and make sure that it's done. Now, I want you to notice this. And we're not going to take time to read it because we're running out of time. And I want to finish this today. But he goes on and he, he makes sure that he protects her reputation right there on the threshing room floor. He says, now, I want you to go on and leave before anybody wakes up. So that they will, they will not see that you were down here in the night. I think there's a couple reasons for that. One reason is because he's about to go to court. And if somebody saw her down there on the threshing room floor that night, they might have an accusation against her. It whether it was accurate or not, they might have an accusation against her. And second reason is he's just, he, he's a good man and he wants to protect her reputation. So he's protecting her reputation right then, before he marries her, and then he's going to protect her reputation for the rest of her life if he's the one that marries her. Okay, so then the question is: well, you know, like I told you. He doesn't know how this is going to work out. He doesn't know what the near kinsman's going to do. As a matter of fact, there's a collective gasp that goes up here in just a minute when the near kinsman responds. We read in chapter 4 that Boaz goes up to the gate. That was the court of the city. He sits down and he gathers a jury. He gets a jury together. This is actually a, 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 a civil proceeding. And he speaks to the one who was the near kinsman. He's sitting there watching for him the next morning. And he sits him down here and he takes 10 men. That's almost uh, a jury of 12. <laughs> He takes a jury of ten men, of the elders of the city, and he puts them there across from them, and he begins to lay out the case. He says, Naomi came again, and Elimelech is dead. And he says, I thought to advertise thee, verse 4. See, this is a civil proceeding. I want to advertise you by this and before the elders here. Redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. See, there's somebody in front of me. (laughs) Young men... Maybe I'm taking this a little bit too far, but you know, you may be just bonkers in love with this particular girl or that particular girl, but there's a, another guy in front of you. <laughs> just be patient. You know, he may, he may mess up. He may stumble. He may do like the near kinsman did right here. <laughs> he may trip up. <laughs> and I don't mean trip him, I don't mean that by any means, but just be patient. Boaz was a patient man, he was going to see it through no matter the consequence of it. There was another guy in the way. <laughs> And so he says, if you will buy it, then you do it. You have the right before me. And the man says, I will do it. And that's when the collective collective gasp went up. The crowd goes, oh, no, it's not going to work out for Boaz and Ruth. But then Boaz is very, very wise and clever man. He says, don't forget the day that you buy the field at the hand of Naomi, the property, you must also buy it at the hand of Ruth and you must also raise up seed for the dead. You must raise up a child for the dead. The firstborn of that marriage is going to belong to the heirship line of Elimelech, who was deceased and had no son. And so here's the pauper part of it. Y'all been waiting. Where's the pauper come in? Here, the the near kinsman's. he's too cheap. He doesn't want to put down the money or the time or the effort to do this. So I, I read from John Gill, who is a favorite commentator of mine. From the 1600s, 1700s. And he says this on this part. Because the the near kinsman says in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. This is what John Gill says, and I love this. That the near kinsman considered that as he had a wife and children already, and as he might have more wife and children by marrying Ruth... His family expenses would be increased and his estate diminished. And what would remain must be divided among many. And this estate in particular go to Ruth's firstborn, whereby his own inheritance would be scattered and crumbled and come to little or nothing. Add to all this which he might suppose that her ancient mother Naomi would be upon his hands to maintain also. So, you know, The guy sitting there computing his mind, he's thinking, well, if I marry her and we have a son, she's young, we'll have a son. Then that son is going to inherit all that property that I'm about to put money down for. And not only that, he's going to be one of the heirs of my own estate. He's going to share a one, whatever part, tenth part, or whatever part of the estate that I have. And then, oh my goodness, you know, he's got this. Uh, she's got this. This mother-in-law, and oh, I'm going to, have to take care of her too. He's a pauper. He's a cheapo. He won't do it. I'm glad he doesn't do it. I'm glad he doesn't do it. So he waves his right to marry. Let me tell you something young ladies, young sisters. If you find a young man that's interested in you and he's sitting back thinking about the cost of what it's going to cost to marry you and how, much, how expensive you're going to be and all of this, then you better do a double take and think twice. <laughs> There's going to be issues down the road. You don't want to marry a pauper. And again, we're not talking about a sugar, marrying a sugar daddy. <laughs> See? You don't want to marry a pauper. He's too cheap to marry her. So the prince, Boaz, he moves forward. The man says, he will waive the right. And Boaz says, here's the testimony before all of the city. Therefore, the kinsman said unto Boaz, buy it for thee, verse 8. And Boaz, it says, he drew off his shoe. And the custom was in those days that if a man was not going to, uh, to waive his right to, that he was required to do by law, that he took off his shoe and handed it to the other men. In, in sermons, gone in sermons from days past, I've preached a message a couple times, talking about how they probably had that shoe that the kinsman took off, sitting up on their mantle, framed. You know, you remember that shoe that he wouldn't do. He wouldn't do what I have done for you. There's the shoe. You know, you might have a picture of you know yourself from a wedding. You know, with the two of you the know, husband and wife, you know, spouse in the wedding picture. But there was probably a shoe on their mantle. And it was indicative that the man had waived his right to do his, his legal requirement. And Boaz said to the elders, verse 9, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Shalon's and Milan's and the land at the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Milan, have I purchased to be my wife. Now, as we close our thoughts on this, I want you to think about it. Here is a man who provided for a woman before he was even romantically interested in her, he brought a sigh of relief to her life. And here is a man who protected. He brought safety, security, and socialization to this woman. Even before he was moving forward with being married to her. And he preserved her. He preserved her at that moment, and he also preserved her for the rest of her life. Could you all imagine Ruth? And she's sitting there months and months later and she's holding little baby Obed and she's sitting in the, in the great house of Boaz and she's thinking, how did I get here? <laughs> Only by the grace of God. You see, Boaz preserved and a broken line was redeemed. <laughs> you say, well, that doesn't really apply to us. Let me tell you something. There's, there is any broken life that's out there, God can redeem. Amen. You hear me? Any broken life, God can redeem. Amen. Now, I told you there's a little bit something deeper going on here. Well, if you want to read about the exact provisions in the law of, of redeeming a, a kinsman redeemer, you can go to Deuteronomy 25. We're not going to do that. We don't have time. we only got a couple minutes. Deuteronomy 25 expels out exactly what happened here, what they were supposed to do under the Mosaic law when there was one who didn't have an heir. The brother was supposed to take, the near kinsman was supposed to take the right and provide an heir for that line. Now. Notice what they say after this happens in verse eleven. All the people that were in the gate said, "We are witnesses. The Lord make this woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which two did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephratah, and be famous in Bethlehem, and let thy house be like the house of Pharez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman." What in the who in the world is that? Did you know that Pharez? That occurred about 500 years before. Do you remember what was going on in your family line 500 years before? From now? Before now? I don't. I don't know what was going on among the McCools in 1500 or 1400. These people here cared enough about their history and where they came from. They still remembered what happened in the days of Phares. So why in the world would they bring up Phares when they're talking about this kinsman redeemer? It's because Phares was one who, who was the result of a kinsman redeemer. Now, you may remember Judah. <laughs> Judah was supposed to provide a wife for his daughter-in-law, and he didn't. Actually, he provided two men, and they both died, two of his sons. And then he was supposed to provide a third one, and he didn't do it. And you remember the real tangled mess that took place there? And Judah went in under Tamar, and she was actually dressed up and disguised and had a son named Pharez. So here's, here's what I want you to get. The reason they mention Pharez is because Judah was his own kinsman redeemer. That's weird and grotesque, isn't it? (laughs) Judah, they needed a kinsman redeemer for the line that was dead there and Tamar was just in the same position as Ruth. Same position. And so in a twisted, sinful sense of irony, Judah becomes his own kinsman redeemer. Y'all ever heard the Lonzo and Oscar song, I'm My Own Grandpa? (laughs) If you ever chart out that song... It's actually accurate. It'll take you about two weeks to chart it out, but it's very accurate. But I think that Judah was kind of putting Pharez on the road to becoming his own grandpa. Judah, in a sinful twist of irony, Judah becomes his own kinsman redeemer. And if you can't see, as C.S. Lewis, if you can't see the deeper magic, C.S. Lewis spoke of the deeper magic that brought redemption in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you can't see the deeper magic that's going on there, The super Judah, Jesus Christ, became his own kinsman redeemer for all of his children. You see, Adam sold your birthright. Adam sold it into sin. Sold it into the slavery of sin. And Adam was not capable and not able to redeem the line of men. But there was a deeper magic. (laughs) There was a kinsman redeemer in heaven that was able, is able, was able, shall forever be able to redeem the, the broken line of mankind. Isn't that wonderful? So there's a deeper meaning going on here than just a man marrying a woman and bringing a line back that was from the dead. You see, this is a foreshadowing. As brother McNeil has brought beautiful foreshadowing today of Joseph and Christ. Boaz is a foreshadowing of the kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, the super redeemer, the super Boaz, who would redeem his own line because he looked and there was no man to do this. Now, let me tell you, young men, young fellows, married men, whatever your status may be, there is no better place to look to understand what God would have us to do as men, as young men, as little fellows. There's no better place to look than the Word of God. We should be focused on providing and bringing sighs of relief to the ladies and the women and the girls in our lives. We should be focused on protecting to provide for their safety, their security, and for their socialization. And we should be focusing on preserving, being deliberate in how we do those things. It's not just about being romantically interested in someone. Well, I'll do it for this one because I'm romantically interested. Well, you ought to do it for the one that you're romantically interested in, no doubt. (laughs) But you ought to be doing it for all of those dear sisters and girls and women, mothers, grandmothers, spouses in your life. I hope that we've learned something from the Prince Boaz and from the pauper, the near kinsman, who was just too cheap (laughs) to do it. And we give you an opportunity now as we stand and sing some song. If there's one or more here that would like to follow the Lord, we give you that opportunity now to come and make that known.